Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, and help support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Gilda Alicia Kakavo. Gilda is a marine biologist in Berlin, Germany, who studies Antarctic fish, in particular, the species sold as Chilean sea bass, the Antarctic toothfish. Originally from Brooklyn, New York, Gilda always knew she wanted to be a scientist, but diverged from the marine biology path in high school and college when she started doing neurobiology research. This led to her first graduate program in New York, studying the molecular mechanisms of drug addiction. However, a confluence of factors led her to leave the program with a master's degree in biological sciences and returned to her nascent fascination with the ocean, the life contained within. This brought her to Europe, where she got a second master's degree in aquatic biology in London before heading to Padua, Italy, to pursue a PhD in ecology, evolution, and conservation, where she studied the population structure and connectivity of Antarctic silverfish, a keystone forage species in the Southern Ocean. During her PhD, Gilda honed population genetics approaches to address conservation-relevant questions, while also adding analysis of trace elements in fish odorless fatty acids and even penguin telomere lengths to her research toolbox. After completing her PhD, Love brought her to Germany, where she secured funding for her first postdoctoral project, applying similar methods from her PhD to a commercially exploited species, the Antarctic toothfish. In her postdoctoral project, she's moved from genetics to genomics while continuing to use critical data from Odalis to understand population structure based on shared or distinct spawning ground provenance. Now married to the Frenchman that inspired her to come to Berlin, they will soon be moving to Paris, where Gilda secured funding for her next project, integrating genomics into modeling efforts to predict the impacts of climate change on Antarctic toothfish. Welcome to the podcast, Gilda. Thank you so much. That was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to start with people's background. So how did you first get interested in science and fisheries? So for me, I've just always been interested in science as since I was a little kid. I had it in my family because both my parents worked in science. My dad worked in a hospital. My mom was a teacher. And so that was obviously the exposure that started it. And we lived near the ocean. So that interest in science was channeled into marine biology. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then it just happened in, in school. It was something that I could continue to get more and more in, into. And it was really what happened in high school when I had the opportunity to take part in actual like laboratory research that my interest in marine biology shifted, as you mentioned, the, in the bio mm -hmm. to neurobiology, because that's where I had the opportunity to do research. And so a long path later, I made my way back to marine biology, sort of after a lot of soul searching and realizing that the job for me, if I'm going to have a job in society, yeah. is going to be a scientist. Yeah. So I went back to, to studying to in order to be able to do the kind of work that I wanted to do, getting a master's, getting a PhD. And the way I came into fisheries was because I wanted to do science that could be applied and, you know, in a way to make the planet a better place, so to mm -hmm. speak. And, you know, my skills were in molecular biology and genetics and through my studying and research development, I sort of was drawn to projects that use the skills that I had in order to inform policy decisions and conservation strategies, marine spatial planning, stuff like that. And fisheries, especially if I'm interested in marine biology, is a great place to apply those kind yeah. of skills because we want to support sustainable fisheries, both for the ecosystem and for people's consumption. So... I think that's the long answer. Yeah. Was it 
I, I just, I know that some people have a really hard time like being in a master's program and spending so much time on it. Or I think you started as a PhD student and then switched to a master's. So was it difficult to not give up, but to really switch career trajectories and go into this totally different career path from that neurobiology program? That's a really good question. And it was, of course, difficult. I think because when I switched so I'd been in my ma- in my PhD program in New York for four years when I left with a master's, mm-hmm. but I'd also been doing a lot of other things that I was passionate about at the same time. And I feel like I did get something out of it. So it wasn't a complete loss. Plus, PhD, many science PhD programs fund you. So it's not like I was paying four years of tuition that then, you know, went away for, for almost nothing. I mean, I got the master's, but, right. you know, I was also um, like, I became a bartender, which had always been my passion since I wanted to be a marine <laughs> biologist. Mm-hmm. I got a yoga teacher, teacher certification, and I started teaching yoga. I was starting to learn Italian. There were all these other things that I was doing. And so it was sort of a time for me to explore other interests and then kind of come back to realizing that my main thing will be research, just not neurobiology, yeah. but but marine biology. And you know, part of the reasoning for starting that like sort of next career path of graduate education in Europe and in the UK in particular, at least at the time when I did this, which was 2013, 2014, masters in the UK for the field I was looking at lasted one year rather than two years, which was the case in the US. So that's already, you know, because I'm starting late, that's saving some time. And furthermore, despite the fact that I was coming in as an international student, international students, you know, outside of the UK, outside of the EU, pay the highest level of tuition, that tuition at about 20,000 pounds was still half of a yearly master's tuition in the US. Plus the program was lasting half the amount of time. So I was basically paying a quarter of the price for an equivalent master's that I could get in the US and getting to live in a new city and all that stuff. Yeah. You kind of answered my next question, which is why did you choose to pursue your studies in Europe? So I'll switch it a little bit. Why stay in Europe after getting your master's there? That, that's another really good question. Um, I guess there's two answers to it. So one is the, the pragmatic one, which was similar to the reason to choose London. Uh, PhD programs in Europe often last three to four years, as opposed to in the US where they last five to seven years. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is that in Europe, most people go into PhD programs already having a master's and they go into PhD programs going into the project that they will work on for their dissertation. Whereas in the US, many people go in directly from their bachelor's and sort of the first part of the PhD is master's-like coursework. People often also rotate between different labs. They might know what they're interested in generally, like marine biology and genomics, but they don't know exactly what project they want to do. So all of that takes time and all of those steps are sort of skipped in Europe by already having the master's and by applying to certain projects or writing your own project to get funding for. Mm -hmm. So for that practical reason, and because I was already a bit later in in time because of having started the other PhD, I wanted to stay in Europe. And in addition, just like for the, the interest and fun part of it, for me, London was very similar to New York, where I was from. It was an English-speaking country. It was a big city. It was very expensive. Yeah. And to stay in Europe, I didn't want to really stay in London. I wanted to explore the continent, learn a new language, be exposed to a new culture. And two cultures and languages that I was always really passionate about were French and Italian culture. And so I restricted my search of PhD programs and projects to France and Italy, where there's already a ton of opportunity. So it also made it mm-hmm. easier to, to focus on what I could do. Uh, and that 
that process ultimately led me to choose a program and a project in Padua in the northeast of Italy. Is it similar in Europe? So with my program, I was kind of just, I found an advisor and kind of like applied to them instead of applying for Montana State University, which is where I go and then finding an advisor. Is that similar in Italy or do you apply to the program and find an advisor after you're accepted? I think it's very similar. So I applied to a program, but I needed to establish a connection with the advisor I would have, Mm -hmm. sort of get the information about the type of project they were hoping that I would carry out and then get my input on it and how I would want to develop it. So that collaboration needed to be established. And then my application is essentially the project proposal that's submitted to the university and then the university accepts that. So I think in a sense, it's very similar. And I applied also to a couple of programs in France, and that was also similar. In France, they often also do interviews where you have to present your proposal as well. But yeah, it's more or less the same idea. You contact someone, you develop the project proposal, and then you submit that in a formal process to the university's program. That's really cool. I I think I like staying in the U.S. just because most of my family is here, but it's really interesting learning about people going to Europe and the, the kind of different systems that we've got over there and really looking at similarities as well. So my next question, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your research themes and how those have evolved from starting your master's in London to your current postdoctoral work. Yeah. Um, so in London... I had the chance to work at the Zoological Institute there, which was in Regent's Park, and they were working on population genetics to inform the health of benthic ecosystems, ecosystems at the bottom of the sea, and in particular in the North Sea. And so I was lucky enough to be able to go on a Norwegian research vessel that was sampling benthic organisms in different parts of the North Sea where shrimp trawling was taking place in order to assess what impacts, if any, shrimp trawling was having on the local ecosystem. And my project in particular was to look at population genetics in a species of soft coral called sea pens, Funiculina quadrangularis, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but sea pen is a funner name. And the idea behind that project is that these sea pens sort of stick up like palm trees a bit from Mm -hmm. the seafloor. So you can imagine that a trawl that's coming almost like a shovel on the seafloor would scoop those up quite easily if it's trying to collect shrimp that often live near the Mm seafloor. And the idea was that if we could identify genetic isolation between different populations of sea pens, so fragmentation of the populations, that would be an indication of a loss of biodiversity, a loss of population diversity among these sea pens. And these sea pens, like a tree is critical for a forest ecosystem, are critical for benthic ecosystems in the North Sea or in many places around the ocean. So that was the impetus behind the project. And what we ultimately found was that there was some indication of a correlation between greater population isolation in areas where where there was heavier trawling, which was essentially what our hypothesis had been, but it wasn't necessarily as strong as we might have thought. But the idea with a lot of population genetics work is not that you do the study and you like check a box, done, we don't have to look at this anymore. Like population diversity, which is essentially a, a measure of population health, is something that constantly changes as time goes on. And so it's part of really a monitoring practice. You want to keep looking and checking in a regular way to see if 
genetic diversity and population, which is an indication of population diversity, is continuing to be maintained despite impacts from fisheries, despite impacts from climate change and so on. So, so that was the, the master's project. And that was my first view into how to use genetics to address conservation questions. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking for my PhD, that was sort of the skill set I was looking to develop further. And that's how I got involved in a project now moving up the food chain a bit from corals to small fish. So the fish I was studying called the Antarctic silverfish for my PhD. And they're about 10 centimeters, which would be like five inches long. They're quite Mm -hmm. small. They're like forage species. And it was a similar type of question. You know, what is the population structure of the species using genetics, but also using this really cool method, which is called autolift trace element analysis, which is a bit of a mouthful. But as you and many of your listeners might know, because they're into fish, like autolifts (laughs) are Uh, fish ear bones, like the same way we have, as humans have ear bones, they have ear bones as well. And the cool thing about fish autoliths is that they develop in a regular pattern in the same way that a tree grows in a regular way that you can cut through it and see rings and it can identify the age of the tree based on that. And so you could do that also with autoliths. And that's a way that lots of people look at the ages of fish in order to answer questions about stock structure, etc. And the thing with trace element analysis is that every time the fish lays down some calcium to build the bone structure, there's always some other elements that aren't calcium, but have a similar chemical, like, structure to calcium Mm -hmm. that also get laid down and what types of elements and in what concentration they get laid down can be directly related to the environment that the fish is exposed to. So we can measure certain trace elements. Some common ones are magnesium or barium or strontium as a proxy to the type of environment a fish was exposed to. And the main questions we like to answer with this type of method is to understand, were fish from group A spawned in the same area as fish from group B? And we would know that based on whether or not their trace element profiles in the very center of the autolith representing bone structure laid down at the very beginning of life, whether or not that was similar or different. Mm -hmm. We can't necessarily, it's a bit more complex. We want to say group A spawned in this area that would require more types of environmental tracers and things like that. But we can certainly say is A different from B. And that's super useful when trying to understand if different populations are exchanging individuals, how connected they are, which ultimately informs how we want to impose fisheries practices. Mm -hmm. So that's what I added to my toolbox during my PhD. And then moving on to my first postdoctoral project, which I'm completing here in Germany now, I took those tools and then applied them to an even more conservation adjacent species, which is actually a fished species, the Antarctic toothfish, which you mentioned in the bio is also known to many people as Chilean sea bass. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to now apply these methods in a context of fisheries management and spatial management, because in the Antarctic, there is a goal to develop a series of circumpolar marine protected areas to safeguard life around the continent. So far, 
some of your listeners, and you might have heard of one that was developed in the Ross Sea area of the Antarctic, which is the largest marine protected area in the world so far. That was done in 2016. And there's others planned for areas around the Antarctic Peninsula, the Weddell Sea, East Antarctica, and so on. And so this kind of data about population structure, particularly about a top predator species like Chilean sea bass, is very useful to inform where the boundaries of marine protected areas should be placed and also how fisheries practices should be implemented. And so in addition to applying the techniques I developed in my doctoral research to Antarctic toothfish, it was also about taking everything up to 11, so to speak. So like moving from genetics to genomics techniques, which we can talk more about in further questions, but also with the autolift trace element work, seeing if we could look at not just elements that were laid down when the fish was born and right before the fish was captured, but also if we could use transects, so going from the center of the autolith to the edge and seeing how elemental deposition patterns change over the life of the fish, see if we can use those to inform migration patterns over the life of the fish. Mm -hmm. So those are the two sort of new things in the current project. And then last but not least, (laughs) the next project that I'll be moving on to in a month, because this project's winding down, is going to be moving from getting that baseline sense of how a population is doing to using the ba- the baseline information about population connectivity to predict how populations will fare with respect to climate change. So now integrating environmental variables like temperature, like sea ice extent with oceanographic current patterns to then have a sense of not just what's happening now, but what can happen in the future. Because precautionary practices and marine spatial planning, that's all about a vision to the future. And while present data can inform that, if we can model how that present data will look in the future, we can be even smarter about the policies we make. So that's going to be the next stuff I'll be working on. This is so cool. (laughs) I'm so glad you like it. My first one, I've heard a little bit of using otolith microchemistry in salmonid streams where they're trying to figure out where their natal spawning streams are. So it's really cool. I've wondered if you could use in the ocean, but it always seemed like the signal was so similar, but maybe that was just in comparison with freshwater streams. So the hope here is that there's enough difference in the water chemistry across where they're moving that you might actually be able to get at those movement patterns. For sure. And you're right to say that there is definitely a difference in magnitude of signal between species that have a life history that goes between fresh and salt water. You definitely see differences there for sure. That's where these type of techniques were first developed, but they've shown that in, in particular in the waters around the Southern Ocean in, in the Antarctic, but also in other environments as well, depending on the water mass that fish occupy, depending on certain current systems that they're associated with, you can define differences. They're not as strong. It's more difficult mm-hmm. to tease them out. And perhaps we can't find the same extent of difference that you can in freshwater systems, but there is still a signal there and, and you can you can work with it, even yeah. if it's a bit more difficult. So yeah. That's the good news, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I've got a couple, these, they're a little bit haphazard, so hopefully they'll make (laughs) sense to the listeners. In your bio, you had mentioned that one of the techniques you'd used in your, like, or that you developed in your PhD toolbox, in addition to the microchemistry methods was looking at penguin telomere links. And I was curious why you were looking at that and how it's relevant to that Antarctic toothfish research. (laughs) Uh, It's a very good question because it's actually not really Antarctic (laughs) toothfish research. One of the other 
huge perks, I think, of being a marine biologist and a fishery scientist is the people you meet and get to work with. So back in late 2016, when I was at my first conference, it was an Antarctic conference in Malaysia, funnily enough, I met this amazing researcher named Yann Ropert Couder. French. And he works on mammal and bird telemetry, meaning using tiny devices that are attached to their head or their flipper in order to see their movement patterns, reproduction patterns, and so on, in order to inform similar types of Mm -hmm. things, fisheries practices, you know, to avoid areas that these animals are breeding and so on, as well as marine spatial planning. And so I met him at this conference and he was so much fun, such a great guy. And I was like, man, I wish I could do a project with him. Him. And, uh, but you know, how do you put together fish population genetics and bird mammal telemetry? Right. And so I reached out to him, and it turns out he had a colleague named uh, Frederic Angelier who was working on molecular biology in penguins, in particular, whether or not telomere length could be a useful proxy for stress exposure from humans at Antarctic bases, scientific bases in Antarctica. And so I was like, ding, ding, ding. This is where we can have overlap. It's a chance for me to be able to work with this really great Mm -hmm. guy. It's a chance for me to be able to expand my toolbox of techniques, you know, a little bit away from population genetics and fish, but still it's a question of research applied to help the ways in which we manage human interaction with animals in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately the idea is Many of your listeners and you yourself might have heard of telomeres with respect to age. What you learn in biology is that telomeres shorten over your lifespan. Um, and they're these, like they're, they're basically this genetic material at the end of chromosomes, this DNA at the end of chromosomes. But what's also been defined in recent years in wild animals is that telomere length can be used as a proxy for life expectancy, essentially, the life expectancy of a wild animal. And so you could compare groups of wild animals, and you could essentially tell if you're looking at telomeres and similar aged animals in the two different groups, if one group has shorter telomeres, they might have worse outcomes or might be less able to deal with environmental stress or anthropogenic stress than the group that had longer telomeres. Mm -hmm. So this has been shown in lots of different species, birds, lizards, so so not just marine, but also terrestrial species. And the question was whether or not this could be something useful in the Antarctic, because one of the questions is obviously, so the Antarctic is a place where where no one lives, right? Mm -hmm. There's just researchers that, you know, spend time in, in Antarctic stations, and there's a huge effort to not impact the environment in any sort of negative ways. But monitoring the environment, doing the work that scientists need to do, does impact the environment. So the question is, how can we make sure we have the least amount of impact and mitigate any kind of negative effects that that Mm -hmm. might exist? And so the idea was to develop the potential of this proxy that we could then use to say, you know, if there's a question of a group of penguins near a research station, you know, or there's a question of building a runway for planes or a helipad or something like that, or where to put up a new station and so on, that we could use this telomere length proxy to inform whether or not current activity were already having a negative impact on penguin populations. And now while our study was relatively small, I think our group, we had about 20 penguins, Adelie penguins that we looked at, we did see a significant impact of that penguins living near the research base. This was the French research base in the near the Dumont Deauville Sea, that these penguins living near the research base had shorter telomeres than the ones living in a protected area that had almost no exposure to humans. And so while the study was small, it showed that this is a proxy that could be promising to apply to 
larger groups in other parts of the Antarctic as a way to continue to monitor the impact that humans are having on animals in Antarctic. That is very cool. It's cool to hear about side projects too, I think. <laughs> I mean, side projects are the best. It's often difficult for me to focus on one yeah. thing because everything is so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we can go back to your research with the question of what is the benefit of shifting from more population genetics techniques towards genomics? It's a pretty easy answer just by explaining the difference between genetics and genomics. Yeah. And it's just that genomics is more powerful. And so what's genetics and what's genomics? Like we can define genetics as studies using, or at least population genetics, studies that use markers, be they nuclear markers, so markers in DNA that's in the nucleus, mitochondrial markers, so markers in DNA that's in the mitochondria of cells, to, so specific markers that we can use as proxies of relatedness between different groups of species, of, of, of a particular species. Whereas in population genomics, we're no longer just looking at particular markers we're looking at the entire genome of an individual. And the entire genome you can think of as just the sum total of all of the information in the DNA. Mm. And so the first kind of techniques that were developed in genomics were called reduced representation. And the reason for that, it costs money to sequence DNA. For comparison, the Human Genome Project, was, which was one of the first like big sequencing of a whole genome project, took 13 years and cost a couple of billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And it involved hundreds of scientists. Like it was a huge yeah. thing, but that was 20 years ago. It finished in 2003. Like now I can sequence the entire genome of 50 of my Antarctic toothfish or Chilean sea bass for 2000 bucks. It's still wow. expensive, yeah. but like, that's a huge job. And I personally can do that. Like yeah. not with a giant international consortium of hundreds of scientists. So it's essentially an advancement in sequencing technologies, which has led to a drop in their price and increase in their accessibility. And so, you know, the first step into that was reduced representation techniques that were able to break down the genome into reproducible smaller parts. So you would essentially take 1% of the genome and use that as your sample of the genome to then compare between different groups. Mm. But now we're even able to sequence entire genomes and that information that not only provides so much more information and so much more power in looking for differences, but it also lets us look at answer so many more questions. So not just about population relatedness, but about adaptation, population increases and decreases over time, structure of the genome, uh, functional elements, like what gene is involved with what behavior, all of these things. So that's the advantage and the reason why it's possible. That's awesome. So with your shift to genomics, are you trying to develop baselines for the Antarctic toothfish, try to manage those genetic baselines into the future, or is it still just trying to figure out what you need to know about this fish so that you can manage it effectively into the future? I would say a mix of both. So it's about what is the population structure now? So, and developing monitoring methods that we can apply sort of this study make it more streamlined and repeat it over time? Like how, how can we make this more of a regular thing rather than just one analysis now, since it hasn't really been done properly up until now, mm -hmm. as well as understanding sort of what are the unknowns that we want to know about in this fish species. So that's part of the work that I'll be doing in my next project in looking at, well, are there indications of adaptation in the species? And that's something that we can look at by analyzing whole genome data. And while you would think 
adaptation is a good thing and obviously it is, but yeah. it does require, it's an energetic process. It requires more than stasis. And so populations that are undergoing adaptation, which we can identify by analyzing whole genome data, these are populations that are going to be more at risk from environmental stress, anthropogenic stress from fisheries. So those are populations that we might want to manage more precautionarily, or we might want to develop marine protected areas around those particular species, populations, and so mm-hmm. on. So, so yeah, so that's the way in which it, it's both getting a baseline, seeing in terms of just the population structure, seeing how we can look at that all, over time, but also how can we look deeper into g- the genome to answer even more fundamental questions about the health of populations with respect to the stressors that they experience. I feel like my tagline for this episode is just going to be like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> That would be amazing. It's so interesting, though. I hadn't thought about adaptation being an energetic cost and the extra management steps you would want to take for a a species that's adapting to these new environmental conditions. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah. My next question is just kind of silly, but have you got to do any fieldwork for this work? Like, have you been able to visit Antarctica? It's it's not silly at all. And unfortunately, I have a disappointing answer, which is no. Um, (laughs) And the reason for that is for my PhD, all of the samples were already collected. So I didn't, there was no burning need and also no opportunity presented itself for me to be Mm -hmm. able to go down. And that predicament is even further exacerbated in my current work with Antarctic toothfish or Chilean sea bass because it is a fish species. So there's many countries around the world that are fishing for it in the Antarctic and everyone that fishes for Antarctic toothfish has to keep aside a certain number of fish for scientific sampling in order to keep collecting data on stock assessments to inform fisheries regulations Mm -hmm. and so on. So there's plenty of fish available. I've got, from the comfort of my desk, I can organize (laughs) the shipment of you know, hundreds of toothfish samples from countries all over the world. So that means that I have to be even more creative to find a good reason yeah. to to go down. So I haven't had the opportunity to go to the Southern Ocean yet. I did have the opportunity to go into the field for my master's work in the North Sea. It's not the Southern Ocean, but it was yeah. still a lot of fun. And I hope that I will be able to go sometime, but it's also, it's always more difficult to do field work in Antarctica because it's Mm -hmm. more difficult to get to Antarctica. Field trips usually last at least two to three months, whereas I was able to go do field work in the North Sea for three weeks and people working on a river can go there in the afternoon and come back. Like (laughs) there's, you know, different difficulties of field work depending on where you're doing it. So, so while I would like to do that, it also does require like the sacrifice of being away from home for three months. So We'll see. Yeah. Antarctica is one of those places where I'm like, oh, that'd be so cool to visit. And I'm like, that would take so much effort to go visit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think people sometimes manage to do shorter trips, especially if you're going to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the Mm -hmm. closest place to southern, to the tip of South America. You know, maybe you could go for a month or even several weeks. You know, there's the folks that go to the center of the continent that are doing terrestrial work. Like, I mean, there's people that stay. 13, 14 months, they're doing the overwinter. Like it's, it can get really intense. You have yeah. to be a certain kind of personality to, to do that kind of work that you stay for 14 months in a research station in the middle of Antarctica. Yeah. It is really nice that you, with the commercial fishing, they have really nice access to a lot of data through that though. Cause it does seem like it'd be very difficult to go out and collect all the samples yourself. And that's, what's really cool about how 
toothfish species because there's the Antarctic toothfish, which is below the Antarctic confluence, the Antarctic mm-hmm. circumpolar current. But there is a sister species, the Patagonian toothfish, which is found north of that barrier and along the Chilean coast. Um, and both are sold as Chilean sea bass. Okay. But I focus on Antarctic toothfish. So essentially, there's an international organization called CAMLAR, which stands for the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. <laughs> it's a mouthful. But it's essentially an organization, an international organization that manages the fishery because like n- nobody owns Antarctica, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a free continent for for research and peace. So there's not like, to be fair, there's always a little start to that because there are some economic exclusive zones in the Southern Ocean, but these are very tiny with respect to the entire Southern Ocean. So the whole area is managed by this international group and they organize this mandatory sampling from the fisheries vessels and so on in a way that I'm sure fisheries and other environments, like scientists that work on fisheries and other environments would be envious of. And that, of course, also has to do with that there's far less fishing in the Southern Ocean just because it's so expensive and difficult Mm -hmm. to get to. So it's also a volume that's much smaller than, say, like tuna fishing in the Pacific. Yeah. (laughs) So interesting. (laughs) But we can switch gears a little bit. I noticed from your CV, you're also involved with the American Fisheries Society Climate Ambassadors Program. I was wondering if you could talk about one, what the program is and then what you do with that program. Sure. Well, if they're listening, uh, I hope I'm doing a good job. Because <laughs> the idea is it's a program to bring together people involved in fishery science. So that could be scientists, teachers, educators, policy folks, every level to give them tools to communicate their science to all different kinds of groups, be it the public, in person, media, so it, like television and radio, social media, politicians, international organizations, mm-hmm. and so on. How can you communicate your science in the light of climate change? So in particular, the research you do that's relevant to climate change, how to best communicate that. So we're, we're the inaugural group. There's 20 of us. The program's all online. I mean, it started in COVID, so mm-hmm. of course. I'm, I'm the only one that's not in the U.S. <laughs> it's usually 10 o'clock at night that I'm doing the, the meetings, but it's fine. Yeah. I'm a night owl. And yeah, it's, it's a series of different types of, we meet twice a week online and we do trainings and workshops. So anything from getting lectures from improv actors about how to, to speak and engage with folks to like learning how to develop engaging narrative, narratives, such as the ABT construct, which is the and, but, therefore. So always wanting to frame your ideas, like you start with the and, you bring in the but, and then you <laughs> resolve with the therefore. And that makes for more engaging stories telling essentially. Mm -hmm. So this kind of training and material and tools and tips, and then we get to, you know, create different types of materials, fact sheets, videos, stuff like that, work with people that are in science communication in the media, all that sort of thing. And yeah, so far, I mean, I hope that it's had some impact on my communication and presentation so far. Um, I think it for sure it has. And it's also a really great group of people that are in the program, people that manage the program. So it's, I'm very privileged to be a part of it. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. I remember seeing some of the posts about it when it came out. So I was pretty excited when I saw it on your CV. I'm like, oh, I can ask more about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
highly recommend. Yeah. Seems like a very cool program. I would love to improve my science communication skills. That was part of my driving factor. And I was like, when they were looking for volunteers for the podcast, I'm like, oh, that might be a good opportunity for that. I tell you everyone, like we can all improve our communicate, our communication in anything and communication in science in particular. So I think every opportunity, I'm always excited to take it. So I completely relate to how you feel about it too. Yeah. Very cool. So one question I like to ask most people is what hobbies and interests they have outside of fisheries and conservation. Cause I think sometimes we forget that we're people outside of scientists. So it's nice to have a reminder that we can do other things. So what hobbies and interests do you have? I, I agree that that's a very nice question and important to humanize scientists. I I've got lots of hobbies outside of, of fishery science. First is biking. I love biking. I do it as my means of transport. I don't drive, for example. And I also really like doing bike trips. Once with a friend, I biked from New York to Minnesota over three weeks. And recently during my honeymoon with my husband, we biked from Venice in Italy, where we got engaged to Naples in the South, 900 kilometers later. We're near where we got married. So it was a bit like (laughs) full circle. Yeah. Um, Plus bike trip. And that was over three weeks. So that was really cool too. I also really enjoy making cocktails. I'm a bit of of a mixologist, yeah. as they like to say, both <laughs> alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And uh, I love like gardening. And we're really lucky in Berlin to have a balcony where we could grow like tomatoes and zucchini and corn. And yeah. we even have a wasabi plant, uh, which is fun. And and yeah, music. Like I love, I'm always listening to music. That's the great thing about working at home. I could always have music on. Yeah. And I really like vinyls as well. We I have about a thousand vinyl records and it's a great thing to work while listening to vinyls because you have to get up every 22 minutes so you're never sitting for <laughs> t- such a long period of time like right. they always say you should you should get up like once or twice every hour so it's perfect like vi- yeah. it's the vinyl exercise <laughs> <laughs> add that on to the pomodoro technique <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's awesome all right well jilda this brings us to okay. i always struggle with this part of the our script because we always say like oh the tough part of the interview is over so i don't know if they agree <laughs> that this is the tough part <laughs> We are brought to our final five questions that we ask each guest on the show. And the first one is, what is your favorite fish? So my sort of propaganda answer would, of course, be Antarctic (laughs) toothfish because it's what I study. But I would say if I could pick another fish, it would be coelacanths, like the fish they discovered around Madagascar with the the legs, because that's just such a crazy thing that there are still fish in that like evolutionary transition between fish and land animals. It just blows my mind every time. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. All right. The second one is what is your favorite memory from your career so far? That's a really tough question because there's lots of types of memories. So there's like memories, like sort of achievement memories, like when I defended my PhD, when I published my first paper, when I got my mm-hmm. first postdoctoral grant. And then there's like field memories, like working 12 hours on the research vessel in the yeah. North Sea, and then like also hanging out at bars in Norway with colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like memories of being in the lab all night and then biking home and watching the sunrise in Italy. And then like meeting my husband at a conference who would become my husband. So like, there's, there's so many, like you kind of have to pick like what strain of, of the life of the scientist. But I think that's a smattering of all of the things that were really important in my career so far. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our next one is what is your dream job and location? I would say that my dream job is exactly what I'm doing now. (laughs) But just doing it at a larger scale and with more job security. So Mm -hmm. the idea would be to, instead of me just carrying out my research project, to 
have a research program in which I had technicians, other researchers, postdocs, and students work that I would work together with to carry out multiple research streams under the umbrella of like conservation genomics and modeling and other types of tools to understand population and so on. And I mean, the dream place is is where I'm going is Paris. Well, I will say what the dream place is. The dream place is Paris plus New York. Because as you said, for for you, like you want to be in the US because that's where you have family. Like I have family in in New York and it's Mm -hmm. hard to be in Europe and be away from them. So like the the dream would be to be set up professionally in Paris and have the advantages of living there, the European social safety net and all that, but also have a professional foot in New York to be able to go more often to also be with family there mm-hmm. um, and so on. So that's the dream. So far, we've got one foot in Paris and yep. we're working on the foot in New York. There you go. <laughs> Making progress. Exactly. <laughs> All right. If money was on issue, what is one project you'd like to work on? So I think I might prompt another that's so cool because I prompts it from <laughs> me with the following uh, project, which are pop-off tags. So what these are, oh, ovulo pop-up tags. And what these are, are fish tags that are essentially little tiny computers the size of a fish egg that you can implant into a fish ovary. And the idea is when the fish spawns, the the little mechanical device comes out at the same time and it transmits a radio signal with the information of when it spawned, where, when the fish spawned, where it spawned, and all the relevant environmental data, depth, temperature, salinity, and so on. And this is an incredible tool to be able to understand fish reproduction processes Mm -hmm. in areas that are hard to get to when we can't, because for example, Antarctic toothfish spawn in the winter, the winter in the Antarctic is there's sea ice out to forever. It's really difficult to access a lot of these spaces. So we know we're starting to learn more, but we know very little. The problem is, is that these tags are just being developed. It's not clear how well they can work in like the open ocean, for Mm -hmm. example. And number two, they cost $2,000 a pop. (laughs) So if I, if money was not an option, I would have a barrel of these. I would work to optimize them in toothfish and then work to actually create a study Mm -hmm. based on them to be able to understand more about how spawning works, because that's hugely important to understand population structure, connectivity, and then to develop marine spatial planning and precautionary fisheries practices. That is another, that's so cool prompt. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I was like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, do I say it? No. (laughs) That would be very interesting. Because I think a lot, even just, I work with trout in Montana, and we still don't know a lot about what they do in the winter, just because winter is really hard to work with. And so thinking of ways around that, especially like I can't imagine trying to work in Antarctica in the winter. So exactly. I mean, so it's not only in crazy ecosystems like Antarctica where these could be useful, just as you were saying, Montana trout. This would be a great place to use such a system as well once we can get it to work, you know, while we're not there and right. maybe spend less on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely spend less. <laughs> Okay. Our final question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I was thinking about this and I think I have one scientific one, which would be the fact that genomics is not just in the ways that many people might've heard of it, like ancestry DNA kits and being able to understand where you come from and so on. Uh, But it's also sort of a window into the future because we can Mm. use this to understand how wild populations will have a tendency to react to environmental stressors from climate change, from humans, and so on. So that's 
that's my scientific uh, yeah. take home. And then my sort of more general one is that like some of my most enjoyable moments as a marine biologist, as a fishery scientist, is just like sitting at my desk at my computer with my my partner next to me on his desk and we're listening to a record and it's just the <laughs> afternoon and I'm having some tea and that's it. And it's just so wonderful. It's not necessarily the like when I was on a boat in the North Sea with the 10 meter waves <laughs> or when somebody was on a glacier in Antarctica. And I think a lot of your listeners might also have this, you know, looking towards fishery scientists or scientists generally like, wow, that's so cool. What I do is so lame. But I think the coolest things that people do and the most beautiful things are really those everyday things. I think it's impossible not to to envy and to think other things mm-hmm. are, are cool and want to do that. But it we lose the appreciation for the beautiful things right under our nose when, when we get too caught up in that. So that would be my more general take home yeah. point. That is such a good reminder because that's, I mean, it's the majority of what we're doing too. So it helps to be more grateful for those everyday moments. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Jilda, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It was so fun and so cool learning about your research. <laughs> if people want to find out more about your work or get a hold of you, how could they do that? So I have a website, basically my name, um, jildacacavo.com, where I have everything about my research, all the other kind of groups and my papers and things that I'm linked to, research projects, um, my emails there if you want to find out more or get in touch. Uh, So I would say that's the easiest thing. And um, I mean, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Katie. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad it was fun for both of us. If you would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod, or send us an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, genomics can be used as a window to the future. And be sure to appreciate the everyday moments of being a scientist. Mm-hmm.